Welcome to Flow with Armand Asadi. Welcome, welcome, my beautiful people. Today I have in the house, in the house, <laughs> there's going to be some accents getting dropped. You're going to see what I mean real quick. Some imitations, some accents coming at you from Miss Mona Green. This conversation kicks off in an absolutely hilarious way. You'll see what I mean in a second um, because Mona herself is absolutely hilarious. And she's incredibly brilliant and very wise because she has not only been on an incredible journey herself, but she is a coach to many top performers and people all around the world. And speaking of being all around the world, she's lived all around the world. She speaks, what, four languages, Mona? Maybe five? Um, and has lived all around the world and is really a wonderful, multicultured, global citizen that I wanted to have on the show today. Because I know that one of her areas of interest is the Me Too movement and what that looks like going forward. How do we continue to develop that? What does it mean for men? What does it mean for women? And I wanted to have a really candid, open, honest, vulnerable, uh, even controversial, what many people would see, conversation. A conversation that I just don't see. Uh, at all out there, you're definitely not going to be able to turn on the TV and find a conversation like this with two people being very honest about the reality of this situation, what it means and how to feel about it, how to think about it, um, and how to be rational about the best way to move forward to build a bridge between men and women moving forward in a time when everything is more chaotic than it's ever been. And so we have some work to do here, and we can't forget that this door has been opened. So super, super excited to have Mona in the house today. A quick note before we dive in, I want to give a shout out to Resonate Recordings, uh, who handles all of my podcast production, the editing, they clean it up, they make it happen, they add the little jingle, the little, by the way, what do you think of my little, my little jingle, my little uh, opening um, song? I love it. It won't hurt my feelings if you don't love it. Just let me know. So um, if you want, uh, by the way, a free episode recorded by them, just shoot me a text with hashtag resonate and I will send you a link. Uh, it'll actually auto send you one. It'll send you a link to check out resonate and a free gift for it's like a $60 credit to work with them and get one podcast episode recorded or I should say edited for free. So just shoot a text to 619 825 2595 with hashtag resonate, R-E-S-O-N-A-T-E. That's how you spell resonate. <laughs> All right, ladies and gents, without further ado, the wonderful Mona Green. You just do accents like most of the time. But of course, we can do all the podcasts like this if you want. Is this one German? Talk oh, about man. very serious Me Too related material. Yes. <laughs> Is she Austrian or German? I can't She's tell. She's half and half. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course, like all the good ones. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is totally going to be part of it. Fuck it. Um, God, I love that about you. Where does that come from? Where does all this silliness come from? Have you always uh, been like, have you always yeah. been like that? Were you like the little kid? In the living room doing voices and imitating people? Absolutely. Performer really? since day one. I blame my astrology because I'm a, a Pisces sun, which means we uh -huh. have a little bit of all the signs, but we're also deeply intuitive and observant. Mm -hmm. And a Gemini moon and rising, which means chatty Cathy in the oh. house all the time and highly curious. So I pick up a lot of things from my environment. My mirror neurons are 
insane. Really? So they're yeah. just going off. You're taking in everything really quickly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I think I'm somewhat similar. I've always been, uh, it's funny. I only do that with friends what we just did. And now that means we're close friends. So <laughs> I, I will do these like voices and yeah. silly characters and uh -huh. only the closest people know me for that. And they're honestly, I've had friends be like, dude, Armand, why aren't you just like doing a different accent in every podcast you do and just leaving people guessing like who the fuck you are and what is even going on in the world? I'm like, yeah, we might have to start introducing some some of that craziness. I mean, Armand, I will tell you, I have received the same feedback myself. They're like, oh my Mona, God. baby, you got a gift. And it ain't just things oh you have to say, say it too, you know? Oh my God. You could literally, if I couldn't, if it, actually, you could still pass for like a Bible Belt lady right now. Like if you just called, prank called somebody, they'd totally take that right now. <laughs> and I got you a nice little pie just from yeah. down the street. <laughs> Georgia Peaches, babe. Georgia. Uh, where does the international flavor come from? Uh, I wanted to start there because I know you speak multiple languages. I'm curious how many languages you speak, why, how uh, that all developed. Yeah, so originally born in Colombia. Um, mm -hmm. Parents split when I was relatively young. Mom married a diplomat mm. for the US. So. We changed countries every two to three years while I was growing up. And then I just, I guess, got used to that rhythm of life and kept going into my adult life um, mm. subsequently and picked up a couple of languages along the way. So today I this speak- This was from living in different places as well? Mm -hmm. just from, mm -hmm. Yeah, the languages are usually best learned when you have a significant other that speaks said language. Mm -hmm. I think there's a saying in Turkey that to, what was it? To, to know the tongue, you must touch the tongue. <laughs> <laughs> so I did a study abroad program in Rome, which helped my Italian studies because I did the whole meeting a beautiful Italian man with a Vespa and eating the gelato. And, really? And then I had a season in Paris where I did a very similar thing. Yeah. Ah, so English, Spanish, mm -hmm. Italian, French. Mm -hmm. Wow. Those are all the romantic languages that every single person on the planet wishes they knew. <laughs> and, and they come in handy in very different um, ways. I, actually, I find that I am a different person in each language. Oh, absolutely. There is some amazing science. There are science on this. <laughs> there's, some, there's some amazing science that looks at how um, different parts of the brain activate when you're speaking a different language. And the fascinating thing about it is even subjectively, you and I know from speaking a different language that your personality even changes. Oh, for sure. I mean, like, who I do you become when you're speaking Spanish? Since that's probably the most. I'm cheekier, uh, more irreverent. My hum my sense of humor is a lot more um, slapsticky, and uh, it's funny. I can't think of the word for it in in English or in Spanish, but there's a word in French called coquette, which is kind mm -hmm. of like cheeky, flirty, but not vulgar. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's that's what Spanish brings out in me. Wow. I love that. Oh. What about French? Uh, 
French, I was just remarking yesterday to a girlfriend of mine that I'm surprised that my go-to language when I'm cursing is French. When I'm ah. complaining, when I'm complaining about something, French seems well, they're, like they're, a very they're natural They're the best fit. complainers in the world. They're fantastic <laughs> complainers. I mean, I'll <laughs> With tell very you. Very high I'm, standards. Oh, for sure. When I lived in Paris, you know, I was there for, I think, a little bit over 10 months. And I've had clients all over the world. I have to this day not had a French client. And it was because every time that I explained to somebody what I did for a living, they would be like, why do I need a coach? I have friends and wine. And I'd be like, again, <laughs> how's that working out for you? Um, but yes, the, the French and complaining. Um, well, but I love every, I, I love every single French person I've ever met. Oh, they're the yeah. best. They really are the best. Um, God, I learned so much from French people. I used to live in New York City. And there were a lot of French guys and French girls I was running around with, hanging out with, and they were all around all the time. And I learned these simple things like good conversation, bottle of wine, good cheese, smoke a joint, have a gr deeper conversation. You know, this just kind of c'est la vie type culture that's just so different from what we have in America. And it helped me so much. And I just am so fascinated by other cultures. And I think that one of the coolest things a person can do in life is to take little pieces of the various cultures they like and begin to uh, carve themselves into a world citizen. And I feel very fortunate that I've had the opportunity to do that, but I also must give myself a little recognition. I set the standard that that would be the only option. I was like, I couldn't fucking wait to see the world. I took, I, I, I have, points in my life have spent every dollar I've had to go and travel and see places and connect with people. And it's just a, it's a driver for me. It's not a driver for everybody, but for me, I feel most alive when I'm on the go connecting with fascinating people from around the world, learning about their culture and their language. That to me is life. But even if a person doesn't like travel, there have to be benefits to this. There are just so many beautiful things at you know, seeing reality through different constructs. It's like each person is in their own reality tunnel. And so if you can begin to see the world through a French person's eyes, a Cambodian person's eyes, it expands everything for you. Oh, absolutely. How has it impacted you being multicultural? I mean, France in, in particular, I'll, I'll start there. Well, no, I'll, I'll go general and then I can drill down. But generally speaking, I think that for me, the most fertile part of my education has always been the time and period where I come into a new culture or country and those initial maybe six months of really relinquishing any sort of I've got this mentality and just being a true beginner. Mm. I remember having that feeling intensely in Hong Kong when I decided to jump on the metro without reading Mandarin or Cantonese or knowing where I was going and instantly being exposed to a different way of not just functioning of the metro and, and everything mm -hmm. like that, but personal space, all these other um, intricacies of the culture there that I wasn't yeah. aware of that took me a while to get 
to know and to find my place in. And I find that every travel experience that I've had has had a component of that and has subsequently shaped who I am. And, Mm. you know, we were talking about France a little bit. For me, Paris was where I started really redefining femininity Mm. and, and, uh, really, really grateful for the women who entered my life in that period because it it was a game changer. I went from being a loud and proud guy's girl, I don't understand women, they're so complicated, hmm. and being subjected to this very Western puritanical view that you're either, you know, the virgin or the whore, there, there's nothing in between the two. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden finding myself in Paris sitting, you know, with these gorgeous, empowered women who are very open about their sexuality and drinking whatever they want to drink and wearing whatever they want to wear and um, not feeling the shame that was so prevalent right. in many of the other cultures that I had grown up in. Because a lot of my growing up informative years were spent in Latin America and due mm. to that, in, in you know, more religiously oriented, buttoned up societies. And so it Absolutely. was really refreshing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, God, think about the impact that that would have on your life to be able to sit at the dinner table and uh, drink a glass of wine. And you go and you turn the TV on and there's, you know, sex at, you know, 8 no. o'clock, 8 p.m. And it's normal. And it's not hardcore pornography. It's just like way more than we would ever see in America. It's like the naughty channel that we would never see when you get exposed to that over and over again, and it becomes a part of you, you, you don't, you don't go through all the shame and the guilt and the uh, judgment that we go through in America. That like being that European, we can call it mindset is really, really powerful. But like you said, in certain Latin American countries and certain places that might have a more religious undertone, to their culture, that's uh, kind of the opposite. You, it becomes like something that you have to hold as a secret. And, mm-hmm. you know, you kind of tend to feel guilt. And again, this is such an awesome example of how you can associate with one from one experience, and then you've associated with another, and then you can determine what kind of person you want to be. It's not just, I was born here, this is all I know. You get to decide what parts of you are going to be French, what parts of you are going to be, you know, Colombian. Do you okay. have a favorite culture or favorite place? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it depends on my mood. I would say um, yeah. my my favorite um, international aspect of myself, I would say, is my cheeky Dominican. I lived in the Ooh. Dominican Republic for. A couple of years and there's something about that island and the way that they speak and the cadence and the flavor and the vocabulary just a different and it's a different ball game um really yeah i've never been yeah no it's, wow. it's definitely a place worth exploring both as a tourist but if you can spend like a good maybe month or two over there culturally mm-hmm. speaking it's fascinating um what are they like? So the, the, are they a little more edgy, a little bit more like well, see, so that's Cuban, Cuban kind of flavor? Uh, there, of there's the a little bit of, of a Cuban flavor there. There's there's also you know a lot of richness from the Taino culture, which were the indigenous peoples from the region, which are some of the oldest 
um, indigenous traditions in quote unquote the new world. Mm. Um, but and and this is kind of related to what we were discussing before. It's it's this almost bipolar society where there's you know the music is highly sexually charged and skin and the thing but then mm. you know women are expected to behave a certain way and um it's very um influenced by religion through the state and oh. you know those patriarchal, religious, old school um, mechanisms of population control are still very much in play. So you, you see a society that has this vibrant spirit that has this just beautiful energy, full of natural resources, incredible food, incredible music, incredible sense of humor, but also partially due to the fact that things have been so buttoned up and so repressed for mm -hmm. so long mm -hmm. that there's there's this kind of consistent rub all the time. Wow. It's also the first country that I've realized that they're, they're the one of the ways that they separate each other, you know, we're used to seeing sexism, we're used to seeing racism, uh, follicular distinction. What type of hair you have determines what type of treatment you receive. Mm -hmm. So, and you know, because it's, it's a colonialized country, there's, there's such a thing where um, it actually doesn't matter how dark you are if mm -hmm. you're black, it matters what kind of hair that you have. That, <laughs> that feeds into the pecking order that has been created. Um, and, you know, little things like that that don't stand out as obviously being positive also inform what you decide to take out from every yeah. place that you visit and, and that you decide to call home for a bit. And also show you how fear is such an interesting common denominator that is um, used quite deliberately by people to breed division and separation when there doesn't need mm. to be that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, you know, one more thing on this point of the countries and sometimes the dichotomy that I've experienced. When I went to Brazil, I was blown away by the dichotomy of this country. There were so many things sitting in opposition to one another. Very religious place, but also one of the most sexual places I've ever been. I remember I was there for the World Cup and the first stop I made, I kind of went throughout the whole like Eastern side of the country. And one of the first stops I made was Rio. And a local friend took us out and we were outside, you know, Brazilians love to do this. They just gather in the street. It's just like street party every day. And there was music, there's all this stuff going on. It's all locals and it had nothing to do with the World Cup. So it was just like a totally local thing I remember it was like, hey, it's 2 a.m. At 2 a.m., everybody goes over here to hang out outside of this street corner. And it was like, okay, <laughs> and you show up and there's like a thousand people. I'm not talking about like 50 people. It's like a thousand people. And, um, you know, it was so great. Uh, you know, anybody, whenever you're traveling, any opportunity you get to have a local friend, that's absolutely the best way. You are not even seeing the city or the country or the neighborhood you're in. 
if you are viewing it through the lens of a tourist. You're really not seeing it. So anyway, I was lucky enough to have this local friend and she showed us around and she introduced us to some other friends, um, mix of people. And I remember talking to uh, some of her friends who were talking about their boyfriends. But then as they were talking, they were kind of referring to them by two different names. And I started to get confused and I was like, wait, is it, you know, I'm going to make up the names here. Is it Roberto or Juninho? And which one is it? And she's like, well, both, you know, they're both my boyfriends. And I was like, oh, <laughs> oh, she's like, well, no, there's also, you know, uh, Ronaldo or whatever. And, and she's got three guys in her life that each know about each other. Mm -hmm. It's not a secret. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of cases, and I went around and kind of started, then I became fascinated and I started asking different, different women in particular, like, do you have more, you know, what's your relationship circumstance? It's a very sexual culture and it's completely different. The women, how do I put this? The tables are turned, let's just say. You know, in in America, for example, or in a lot of the Western world, what has uh, been popularized and it's not right. It's just the way that it's been for a long time is like there's the concept of the player. There's the guy going after the girls and he's the one that's got multiple women. And then here you're in Brazil and the women are the players and they're the ones that have the multiple guys. And the guys are just like, I'm just, you know, happy having her in my life and that's it. And they have no one else. And so it's very interesting. It was completely the opposite of anything I'd been exposed to, but also the, the friction, the friction between being a good person and connection to God and the religion combined with, yeah, I might have a threesome tonight you know, or something like it was completely, completely different. And I, I loved it. I thought it was one. Of, and again, I would never have had that context of the world had I not gone there, made the effort, uh, connected with locals and asked the right questions. And now that allows me to see the world in a much more broad way with, you know, possibly like different people see things differently and I can now hold their viewpoints. You know what I'm saying? Right. And, and take from it what feels good and leave what doesn't, you know, I, I think particularly in the discussion between men and women and our relating um, we've been approaching this whole thing in such a binary way that it, it no longer really suits us. And we're starting to see that in, in different pockets around the world, at, you know, different parts of the process. But, you know, why, why is it that that is surprising? Mm hmm. Why, why is, right? You know, why, why is it that the expectation is that the normal thing is the other way around, other than the fact that we've just been practicing that narrative for so long that that's the only one that we know? Mm -hmm. You know, why is it that something like Me Too happens and rather than open the window to a deeper conversation and hopefully some positive change, what we're actually seeing taking place in corporate environments is that, you know, 60% of male managers now feel weird and uneasy about working with women because they <laughs> don't know how to behave anymore. I can understand. And, yeah. And it's, it's one of these things that the environment created because it's been so 
polarized and binary. It's either you're a one or a zero and nothing in between. It doesn't leave any room for this thing called life to actually mm -hmm. unfold in a way that feels natural. I know you've been thinking about this a lot, Mona, over the years. And, you know, even before this, we were talking about like, just just what is really at the forefront of conversation right now, or perhaps what even should be that we can unpack. So I'm really excited about this topic, because I haven't had the opportunity to learn about this topic since it kind of went down. So I, I would love if you could just unpack what even happened that sparked me Too to really become something that uh, got the momentum to earn itself this uh, mainstream um, attention mm -hmm. and what the result was. And now what we're supposed to do in this like post Me Too world where there's a tension being split in so many different ways. And now we're left as your one example in the corporate environment. People don't even know what to do and they're mm -hmm. uncomfortable. So how are we supposed to navigate this? Because nobody wants that awkwardness. <laughs> yeah, no. <I'm>, and <laughs> The good thing is that at least we're being honest about where we are. Mm -hmm. That's that's something that I think is worth mentioning. Also worth mentioning is, you know, I'm still very much a student of this thing as well. I don't think we have had enough research or quite frankly have enough road under our feet traveled to know what works or what doesn't work. But I I, I do know a couple of things that I've picked up along the way these past yeah. couple of years from doing research and, and spending a year working almost exclusively with men because I wanted to create uh, an environment where these questions could be asked um, and where I could, as a woman, learn yeah. what, what yeah, I'm super the curious situation even, was like on, on the other end. So yeah, Even anecdotally, anything you've seen that's right. interesting. So from from my understanding, the whole Me Too thing blew up because I think it was Rose McGowan, um, actress Rose McGowan tweeted something along the lines of, you know, if if only we could actually see if, if every woman who has ever faced some sort of sexual assault or um, been victimized by the patriarchy. If, if we could just quantify that mm. by writing Me Too, I wonder what it would look like. And honestly, as a woman, I sat with whether I wanted to share my, my hashtag Me Too that day because it became the social media phenomenon where just millions of women, hashtag Me Too, hashtag Me Too. And I didn't have the courage to explain what my Me Too experiences had been. And just seeing the sheer volume of Me Too all over my newsfeed mm -hmm. uh, crushed me. Um, mm. Not gonna, you know, not gonna lie. That was a very difficult thing to sit with and also to see the diversity in the experiences that were being talked about and that everybody had been affected. You know, I remember I was living in Bali at the time and I became very good friend, friends with a, a buddy of mine's mom. And she was one of the first people I saw post her hashtag me too story. And that sparked a conversation between 
mother and son and son being mm. like, mom, that's embarrassing. Why are you sharing that? And her sitting him down and be like, oh, sweetheart. <laughs> this is the beginning of an education that is going to be mm. a long education for a lot of a lot of men right now and quite frankly a lot of women and so i feel like for the the years post that moment of the lid being blown on this thing everybody becoming aware of just how prevalent sexual assault is and um toxic masculine behavior finding its way into our everyday lives once that became just more out there then we started trying to figure out okay how do we work with this thing but stumbling along because we didn't have pre-existing frameworks for having these discussions. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like a lot of this mirrors what's happening now with the race conversation in America where there's there's no running from this conversation anymore. Mm-hmm. The, 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 so much crap has gone under that rug that it is no longer flat. People are <laughs> tripping on the rug right now. Because it's so, <laughs> so that doesn't mean that we're well equipped to have these conversations. Why? Because we haven't done our homework. So I feel, I think this happened 2017. This thing came to light, the Weinstein scandal. Mm-hmm. Um, all, of, all of these sub narratives started coming into our collective awareness. And a lot of people felt very overwhelmed very, very quickly. And for a lot of women who have felt repressed and unexpressed and unheard for so long, it was for the first time ever, like we were able to throw up both of our middle fingers and being like, oh, you hear us now? Mm -hmm. This is what's happening. Mm. However, we got to a point where we started weaponizing our pain. Mm -hmm. And though understandable that makes it tricky for the message to land and so this is this is where we're now past the chaotic startup phase of this adventure right and now we're trying to figure out okay how do we actually find a way that works for everybody is there a process is there a way of building bridges in this conversation yes um what does that mean to weaponize it to weaponize your pain when, when, you know, when you are in pain and you inflict pain because you are in pain, mm-hmm. um, as, as a woman, it, it was difficult for me, for me to see conversations happening online where it became conversations about how horrible men were oh, I see. and, and, you know, inflicting uh, more harm just because it was the first time that they felt the ability to express. So there was yeah. a part of me holding a lot of empathy and compassion because I felt that rage too. I've, I've had my own me too experiences. I have felt the unfairness of understanding that I'm being paid less than somebody doing my same job. I've had, you know, mm-hmm. um, I, I, was fortunate enough to do enough work to get to the point where I was like, I'm, I'm not going to land if this comes off in any way other than calm. 
I can't mm. expect that from anybody else right now because I'm trying my absolute hardest to not lose my shit if I'm being yes. really honest. Um, but I, I, I do have to do some work in order for this to land. And that within itself causes a lot of friction because then there's a faction of, of women in particular who are like, we shouldn't have to accommodate the way that we communicate what we're communicating. Mm. Asking for a tailoring of the message so that it will be received is just another condition being placed on our expression. Is it not possible for us to simply express? Mm -hmm. Right? So all of a sudden we're in a situation where we both have to understand that the anger that we see boiling over is a part of the education that we all have to receive and that we all yes. have to sit in the discomfort of. Well, everybody handles trauma and these experiences differently. Differently, right? Yeah. You know, some of us are fighters, some of us are flighters. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm the type that I will, I will fight. Um, but in these conversations, I've also come across um, friends, loved ones who have a differing point of view, and we have yeah. to find a way of building that bridge. And it's meant also me relinquishing a little bit of my sword putting it away and being mm -hmm. like, all right, clearly that approach isn't going to work with you. I'm, I'm not triggered enough to the point where I have only that approach to give. Let's try something else. Yeah. What is the uh, <laughs> opposite of the most ideal approach in term or the most ideal response? Like what is the worst version of a response that you've seen when a, when a woman has the courage to step up and tell her story, what is the thing that she fears most in terms of the response that she might receive? And what is it that, because that needs to be like, we need some rules of engagement here. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's yeah. like, yeah, these are the things that you don't say. These are the things that you don't do. These are the judgments that you shouldn't make. And again, at the end of the day, we can only control so much because yeah. the best form of democracy really is where everybody has an opinion and yeah. we are able to converse and debate in a healthy way. I've learned that when you try to control debate too much and, or, or if you try to agree, that's what creates conflict. You don't have to actually agree. You just need to be able to create space to yeah. listen. But I, I still do think there are certain rules of engagement around, okay, you don't respond like that. <laughs> you know, yeah, there's, there's mean, certain things that, no, that, that I think men also need to understand because the, and I, and I also want to talk, you know, I'll, I'll let you go there, but I want to bring up what I've seen in terms of how men have responded, mm -hmm. which is mostly just silence. Mm. Like just kind of watching. Yeah. You know? So yeah. we'll unpack that. Which is understandable. And, and I'm, I'm loving the idea of going there as well. Um, to your previous point, if, if it were up to me, everybody in the United States should at one point or another read the book, Nonviolent Communication by Marshall Rosenberg, mm. um, because it is a masterclass in how to communicate something, making room for empathy and compassion in the communication for clarity in the message. Hmm. Um, 
And more importantly, and overarchingly, creating a, a sense of safety in the conversation. Emotionally charged conversations are emotionally charged when either party feels unsafe. And so I, I can't tell you there's a best practice that, that I would turn to, but the one thing that I try to remind myself when I'm speaking you know, to a client or a group of people or having these conversations in my life where it's, it's really, really important that everybody involved feels safe enough to express mm -hmm. whatever it is that's on their heart and that you make an agreement to also default to giving the person the benefit of the doubt. Yes. Um, I do think it's really interesting as we unpack this, because part of what I do, Mona, is just as, as we speak, it's like we're unpacking this and even thinking about some new things for the first time. Mm -hmm. I think that um, to expect that a person is going to share a truth and a story without becoming emotional um, is really just an incredibly controlling way of viewing things. In fact, I would say that you should view it as that the default is that they will, because we can understand that from a psychological perspective. Like, let's look at that. If I had a traumatic experience in high school and somebody called me pudgy fat guy, mm -hmm. and now I'm not pudgy fat guy, but I go to In-N-Out and I'm, you know, 25 at that point in my life, and I'm eating that In-N-Out and someone makes a joke and calls me pudgy fat boy, and I immediately go back to that phase of my life and I feel the anger and pain and shame and sadness and loss of identity that I felt in high school. I'm going to lose my shit. And then if I have to defend myself, I'm going to go into that same complex that I was in at that time. So it's like scratching a wound that's there that many of us have done the work with. So, some people have done the work. Some people haven't. Everyone is at a different stage of where they're at and their ability to go back to something that is a slight wound or a scratch or a deeply traumatic experience. And their response to that is going to be different. <laughs> so to expect that they are going to remain calm. Sometimes you know what happens. I bet this has happened to you. It's happened to me countless times. I start calm. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to be good. I'm not going to lose my shit. Nobody's <laughs> going to say anything to me that's going to upset me. And then all of a sudden, somebody finds a way to say something, and I just lose my shit. And I'm like, God, Armand, what happened to your intention of just being chill throughout this whole thing? And you were going to be the wise, you know, calm guy. Mm -hmm. But you can't. You can't control it. And so you have and, to be okay with it yourself, and so well, do others. That, and it's more important to be honest than to be calm. I think I the agree. priority in these conversations needs to shift from one of it's both of us against the issue rather yes. than it's me trying to show you my point and you trying to show you mine. It is. Don't tell me how to express my truth well, is kind of what it comes down to. And also understanding that there's, there's a big difference between the truth with a capital T and us being truthful. Mm hmm. We can both be truthful and be on opposing ends of an argument, seeing the same field. Yes. That is perfectly possible. So you need to have the ability to be able to hold and listen to another point of view um, and make room for the emotion. But what gets us in trouble in this particular conversation explicitly is the fact that we socialize our men into feeling shame around being emotional. Mm -hmm. 
we make it difficult for little boys to develop a, a sophisticated emotional vocabulary that they can later use to express themselves Oof. because we tell them that vulnerable emotion is feminine and therefore undesirable. Don't even use those words. Like we just shame them for even using the word I'm sad. Well, you know, exactly. So, so you create generations of men who it's not that they don't feel it's not that they don't have the, the need to express. It's a very human need. It's, we don't, we don't teach our kids the tools to do this. And yes. so I don't know how many times as a coach, I have been in a situation where I will be talking to either a man or a woman about their relationship thing. And I, I kid you not in the six years that I've been doing this, I think I've heard this from every single client in a relationship <laughs> where the woman says something along the lines of, um, I can't, take it when he tells me to calm down hmm. and then where i hear from from a male client be like i don't understand why she's getting so emotional about it and that disconnect there being the underlying issue that needs to be addressed because they're talking about shit that doesn't matter mm -hmm. That's the actual issue. And it's, it's mm -hmm. the lack of us being able to meet each other in a place where we don't necessarily have to agree, where we can make room for each other's different experiences of life. Yeah. Um, but we can learn to respect each other through that. Yeah. I mean, when I go into a complex and I go into a difficult situation or I'm upset, I'm going to probably get really rational and logical and try to solve the problem. Like that's just the way a lot of men operate and a lot of women don't operate that way. They operate in a way where they need to understand what they're feeling. And you can address this much more poetically and, and correctly than I can. But in my experience, so far as I can tell, it's, it's not about solving the problem. It's about actually unpacking it and being seen and being seen for what the experience actually is. Put yourself in my shoes and understand the pain of what I'm actually experiencing and hold it for me. And let me kind of go, let me go nuts. Let me go crazy. Let me get emotional. Let me be a little bit frantic in that moment so that I can get that out of my system. And then I get to a place where maybe I can even consider how to solve this problem. And for us, you know, a lot of men know this every time they get in trouble when they say something like, let's just fix this. Let's just fix this. And so you're saying the conversation isn't even starting in a lot of ways. Well, no, because this desire, think about where this desire to fix is coming from too. It's, this isn't like a masculine, feminine, gendered thing. It's more of an energetic thing, but mm -hmm. it does find its way into the way that we educate our kids, right? So part of what propagates this this very dysfunction is the fact that we expect our men to fix everything we expect mm. them to have the answer we expect them to provide we mm -hmm. socialize them into thinking that their sense of worth and value is tied to their accomplishment so if you're faced with something and the only way that is quote unquote acceptable or masculine for you to be able to even relate to it is how can I fix it? Where's the doing part of this? Right. Um, then We've what been we're teaching indoctrinated in so right. many ways. Yeah. Right. And so when you come at it from that direction, we see that both men and women can benefit from expressing and allowing themselves to be seen in a more vulnerable mm. way without necessarily having to fix anything. 
I really appreciate that nuance and distinction. That's really important because I did make a bit of a generalization there. And I can tell you from experience, I have many times actually gone into the opposite role where I need to be seen. I need to be heard. I want to cry. And I just don't want my now wife to solve the problem. I don't. You know, and that happens many times. And, mm-hmm. and it's just, it's just a, it's just a exchange of energy and it flows right. both ways. Yeah. Right. And it's, and it's, but by default, I'm usually the other way because of perhaps how everything you just mentioned. Right. And we default to the things that we default to so long as we're operating on autopilot. So can we take a step back beyond our own personal experiences and simply, you know, get on the observation deck for a little while. Hmm. What is the patterning that I'm seeing in my friend group? How many times do women get interrupted? Who feels, um, who speaks the most and who speaks most often? Hmm. Um, how do, how are we designing our, we, our experiences? Are we designing our experiences for a particular profile of human to feel most comfortable? I had that conversation with, with a group of friends not too long ago where it's like all of our experiences are designed essentially for extroverts. Mm-hmm. What if you're the kid who couldn't give a shit about public speaking? All you want to do is be in a corner and paint with some other you know kids who feel the same mm-hmm. way. Who's building for that? Mm-hmm. And this conversation is just as nuanced. So it, it really boils down to just getting real about where we are, what we see in the field, and getting humble. Mm-hmm. We've all contributed. I know, I know things that I have said, done, worn, um, written that have very much fed into this thing that I am now so inflamed about. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So there's, there's a little bit of that reality check with ourselves where it's, you know, sitting in the discomfort of being complicit, but not allowing that to turn into another reason for shaming ourselves. Yes. Enough with the shame. (laughs) So you have this situation where uh, finally a door was opened toward truth. And uh, in most cases, this was mostly women who finally had the opportunity. And sometimes it, it requires a movement to create the space and the opportunity to share a truth and to heal something. And you have all these women that over years now, um, and, and this is not something of the past, you know, I saw something like this, I can bring up an example I saw recently, but the opportunity to finally express some injustice across many different formats that was done to them by men in particular. And what you have happening is a whole sequence of different things. Number one, we kind of mentioned you know, you can't really tell somebody, you can't as the person even expressing it, let's just use like as if we were that person, you can't guarantee that you're not going to get inflamed and upset. You're going to do your best, but there's a traumatic experience there. And it's very likely that either during the time that you're expressing it or in response to it, something is going to get you to go back to that particular moment 
and you, the worst parts of you are going to come out. And sometimes we become unconscious in these experiences because at that time, even we could argue we were unconscious. It's just something that happened and we couldn't control it. So you have that. And then you have the reaction of the other side, men, that I, I would I would love to speak to a little bit. And I, I just, again, it's 2020, so I have to give a bit of a disclaimer here. It's like, I'm no expert in this. I can only share what I understand and what I've experienced. And I haven't researched this a lot at all. But what I can tell you is when it really started coming out, some of the reactions from men, and I don't know how much you've heard. And, and so this would be interesting. You know, it's like, I remember the first time like sitting with other men and, and guys and just this kind of started coming out and it was like, oh shit. So the immediate reaction was, oh shit, so-and-so is fucked. Who's next? So-and-so is fucked. Who's next? Oh, you know, they've got something on so-and-so wait. And then one person says, oh, shit. I mean, what if they pull up something on me from something stupid I did in high school? Like, and then that conversation barely even begins with men around what is acceptable, what may have happened that wasn't okay. And in particular, most importantly, what I would like to see more of and perhaps don't see enough of is now going forward with this newfound uh, awareness that, look, certain old ways of operating or even thinking, because I'll say this, even if most men didn't do some of these things, they thought that way. They thought that it would be okay. Like, yeah. And again, I, I know I'm being super broad here, but basically like what I mean when I say that is just like kind of like initiating a little aggressively or getting what you want and just taking it and that culture of just taking it and I deserve it. And, you know, that's what they want, right? And, uh, that thinking exists though. And that thinking has now started to become eradicated and there's more consciousness. There's more presence. There's more awareness of what is and is not okay. But the main thing I'd like to see next is men being a voice for each other on what is and isn't okay. Yes. And what I still continue to see is certain types of speaking and behavior that probably aren't okay. And men need to start to call that out for each other and it, and shouldn't be shamed for it. You know, I, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate that because I, to this day, still have conversations with um, friends, collaborators, clients where um, the piece of radical ownership and responsibility of what the world looks like moving forward isn't being assumed. And there is no shifting this if we don't all really sit with the fact that, okay, we fucked it up, period. Not getting caught up in the, the, the label of toxic this, toxic that, and oh no, I'm not a toxic anything. I can't relate to myself as a bad human. No, you know what? We're all capable of doing really horrible things and being good people. That's proven. And, and we need to just sit with the reality of that, but start thinking of building bridges moving forward and what that entails from that place of responsibility. You know, responsibility, yes. heavy, heavy lies the head that wears the crown. Do we want to live in a world that is 
better and works for everybody, that has a particular set of behaviors associated with it. That mm -hmm. means men have to start speaking up when the locker room talk starts. That means um, women need to question where it is that they aren't expressing their voice and they're letting their fear win and are engaging in manipulative ways of being like passive aggressiveness be mm -hmm. because that stuff's also fed into the patriarchy. We as mm -hmm. women have contributed just as much as the men have, you know, even though from a power perspective, we may have been subjected for centuries. Um, we've never been dumb. And so we found our own toxic ways of maneuvering within these toxic systems. And all of us need to do the work of moving forward in an honest, but also hyper personally responsible way and being okay with, mm -hmm. with receiving a little heat for it. Yeah. I've had very difficult conversations with some people, some of the people that I love the most, where I will say that is not okay. You need to read more. You need to educate yourself more. Mm -hmm. and, and being met with resistance from that well, it's super and, uncomfortable to hear that, but well, sometimes it's, yeah. Yeah, but you know what? If, if life is teaching us anything in 2020 is that we, we need to have less opinions and mm -hmm. learn more. We mm -hmm. really need to start practicing the art of listening and listening to ourselves, listening to each other, listening to the environment and what life is trying to teach us. And the way yes. that we are operating hasn't been working, so we might yes. as well try to figure out some other way. And and I agree fullheartedly. And while it might be uncomfortable to hear that perhaps you're not educated in something, that is the purpose of other human beings in life. <laughs> if you literally did not have that reflection and that feedback from others, you would not have a sense of who you are from mm -hmm. an awareness perspective. If we want to get philosophical, but more importantly, from a behavior perspective, you mm -hmm. would just walk around being an asshole to everyone and everything. And it's for that reason that you can give a response and turn your back on somebody or look at them funny or say something to them like that wasn't appropriate, that a person even begins to understand what is and is not appropriate. So those are tools that are there for a reason and they're very important. Um, you mentioned the weaponizing thing and I wanted to ask you your personal opinion on something. A lot of people said, especially in the early phases of, of Me Too, that, uh, you know, so you have people sharing their story. This is very challenging to do. This is one of the most courageous things a person could ever do in their entire lives. Mm -hmm. And then you get a lot of people saying, well, okay, I get that. But the concern that I'm having is that some of these people that are being uh, uh, pointed out are immediately viewed as guilty. And I'm curious what you have to say about that, because that became a big concern that a lot of the culture, particularly in the U.S., shifted from innocent until proven guilty to just straight up fucking guilty. And that started to concern some people. And I, I can understand that. I can see that. But I never really spent enough time thinking about it. So I'm curious if you thought about it at all. Well, I, I definitely have. I have. Um, I've had this conversation um, with parents of young boys. You know, because another thing that came up during this time was consent. You know, what does consent look like in a post Me Too era? And um, 
this is the part where we have to just be honest about where we are and the fact that we're figuring this out mm-hmm. and that and the fact that it's going to be messy and the fact that <laughs> we're likely going to make a lot of mistakes along the way but that doesn't make it any less worthy of a venture to embark on yes we have to do this if we don't do this we're going to we're going to keep on a path that's clearly not taking us anywhere good. Mm-hmm. So it's it's doing the work within ourselves to get to a point where we operate enough within the gray to give ourselves enough self-compassion but enough also self-reflection and accountability to understand that dance between I'm a work in progress but I can do better. I'm a work in progress, but I can do better. Mm. And and going, you know, back and forth between those two places because part of what created this issue to begin with was the definition that there's a right and a wrong. Mm-hmm. And you, know, you talk to any sort of um philosopher or human who has really sat with the bigger questions in life and you won't find one that has a direct answer for anything all the real mm. big questions in life are usually paradoxical in in their responses and so us really implicitly understanding that there is no right way of doing this there is no wrong way of doing this but that the right way for now is is meeting you in whatever way mm. we're capable of doing it and being honest and humble in our approach is the best thing that we can hope for you know like mm-hmm. something that has been very heartening to see happening in this country right now with the racial situation is you know for the i i started doing this work years ago and i'm happy to be able to now be a resource for that for other people. I'm happy at how many people are like, "Holy shit, I had no idea any of this." Have, Did you hear about what happened in Tulsa? Yeah, man, I heard about what happened in Tulsa. Um our history book should have taught us about what happened in <laughs> Tulsa. Um they didn't. How can we keep that information rolling? Mhm. And the honesty and that curiosity that maybe we started talking about initially that we get from travel we can you know we can dive into the human condition it doesn't have to necessarily be a different country that teaches us something new it's like what does mm. life look like through the experience of armani asadi i don't know i'm learning a little bit right now that's dope <laughs> <laughs> i love it i love it so i i think what i'm hearing mona is like perhaps that's not the conversation that should be at the forefront this conversation of why are you all because this is more of a macro level thing that happened in society it was like hey you know it's almost like people were saying what about like a what aboutism like but what about the fact that this person is now just being completely you know viewed as guilty and you're sort of what i'm hearing please correct me if i'm wrong is like there's a deeper layer to this that's more important mm-hmm. that that's not the conversation that should be at the forefront that's like a distraction that's what I'm hearing. But because it's based on on more of an exception than the general patterning that we're seeing, right? Mm. So when you start making the rule 
based on a potential exception and you're missing the the deeper layer of that conversation which is one of creating a bridge rather than a further fractalization of the mm -hmm. field then you start thinking okay well that's bound to happen yes. let's find a way of actually working in situations where that happens because one of the other things that you hear commonly in the in these uh situations is well what about women claiming to have been assaulted that haven't been assaulted? Yeah, and that's kind of also what I'm alluding to. And I think part of what's going on for men and part of what's going on for men, particularly in the corporate world and work world is you mentioned weaponizing through one context. I'm also viewing it through the context of it being weaponized against men, meaning that maybe something didn't happen mm -hmm. that this person says did, and it is being used as a weapon that is more... Uh, powerful than pretty much anything else out there because it can ruin their career, their name. Mm -hmm. And it's at the point where many people are not giving that innocence and looking at the case closely. And so it's a really powerful weapon that for a very minority of people is has arguably that that has been used and it's been done. And I think that's what men are so afraid of. Well, They're so afraid of getting even close at all to that being a possibility. Like I know people that <laughs> I know people that have waivers signed in their relationships and various things like that. So yeah. um, it's, but, it's but, and this is a great thing to bring up because this is something that comes up often in these conversations. And um, you know, this, this is, this is a little bit of a tricky one. I'm not going to yeah. lie. I think that, um, Women for centuries have had to watch the way that they behave to survive the patriarchy. If I am walking alone to my car at night, you'd better believe that my keys are in between my fingers mm -hmm. and I'm not listening to music and my behavior, my way of dress, everything has been carefully constructed so that I don't put myself in a situation of danger. And that pretty much never crosses the mind of a man. <laughs> well, exactly. So, completely so welcome, to women, welcome to the reality of actually having to be more conscious about how you show up in the world. And I mm -hmm. know that may sound a little harsh. No, but, no. But dude, That's reality. it's 2020 and it's time that we start just being more real with each other. So yeah. I'm, I'm okay with... Men having to check in, oh, is this a good idea or is this a bad idea? Not feeling too bad about that. Sorry, gentlemen, I love you, but not 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 feeling terrible about that. Mm, I like that. And that's a good um, that's a good comparison, actually. Yeah. And 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 it's a very real one. And if you look at the data of false accusations versus the data of women who don't go through the process of accusing somebody mm -hmm. who did assault them. Right. Look at those numbers. Dagger. <laughs> so we don't consider how a victim's life is absolutely decimated and ruined because we prioritize the promise of a Brock Turner. Mm -hmm. Fuck Brock Turner. I don't know who Brock Turner is, but I got to look he's, it up. <laughs> he's the, the Stanford swimmer guy that took advantage of a, you know, a girl that was unconscious oh, and he God. went to jail, I think, for all of three months. He oh was sentenced God. to six months, 
but he got out in three because he was a promising member of the swim team and oh my God. a white privileged male. Oh um, boy. And, and that's where I think people in positions like myself who look a certain way and who benefit from certain privileges need to lose the discomfort of speaking up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because, I'm so appreciative yeah. that you are addressing these things because part of what I am attempting to do in this conversation is not a representation of myself. It's a representation of ideas. Totally. It's a representation of the energy that exists and to allow this conversation to be an example of the type of conversation that could be happening for mm -hmm. a person that might feel that way and holds that opinion. So mm -hmm. I really appreciate you for doing that. Uh, thank you. Mm -hmm. I, was giggling earlier because I was thinking about um, a really funny example of this that I think is actually helpful to see. So there's a show, Curb Your Enthusiasm. Most people have heard of it. Have you heard of it, Mona? Yeah. yeah. My so stepdad in, looks exactly like Larry David. Oh, my God. <laughs> he's, he's incredible. He's my hero. And he, I think it is the last season. He's on a date in the post-Me Too world, and he's sitting on the sofa of his home. First, he says... You know, first he asks permission. Would you like to come back to my house? Yes, I would, Larry. Okay. Then they go back to her house. He sits on the sofa. May I sit next to you on the sofa? Yes. Yes, I think that would be fine, Larry. She sits. He sits next to her on the sofa. He's eating his popcorn. He offers her a little popcorn. And this is all exaggeration, but it's actually incredible. It's beautiful. He looks at her and he says, now... May I place this right arm across your shoulder? And she looks at him and goes, yes, Larry, I'd like that. And then he goes and says, may I caress your bosom, perhaps? <laughs> and she says, no, Larry, I don't think we're ready for that. <laughs> this scene for me, first of all, <laughs> cracked me up so much because it's just Larry David and anything he does is hilarious. The pendulum has swung the other direction, or at least that is an example of that. One was no conversation, mm -hmm. completed, you know, assumptions mm -hmm. and advantage being taken in many scenarios. And this is Larry David going like making fun of the fact that he has to ask permission for every breath that he takes. Mm -hmm. Fine, fine, because there will become a more respectful middle ground that works for exactly. both parties exactly. if we go from one extreme to another. And sometimes that's yeah. necessary to find the Tao, the middle way or the narrow path. We sometimes have to experience both realities. We've experienced that other reality. It might be okay to experience this one too. Right. And, and, you know, conversely, because that's an example of, of what, many men are probably sitting with in terms of a conversation in their heads, you know, what does it mean like to be a woman post me to wanting to bridge build? And how does that affect the way that I show up in the world and in conversations like this? Because I'm interested in being a safe place for these conversations to happen. Um, I'm also interested in expressing from my point of view and understanding that that might make somebody uncomfortable yes. and realizing that some of the programming that I received, i.e. making sure that everybody likes you and that, you know, th th this whole perfectionist people pleasing machine 
<laughs> complex that yeah. we're put through as women, yeah. um, that I do the work to put that to rest so that, so that I can come to a conversation not feeling the injustice of not having a voice for so long and being able to express it in a way where I've done what I can for it to land. Mm. And then being able to walk away from, from it saying, I showed up in a way that felt productive. Um, I'm also aware of the fact that I'm responsible for 50% of, of that and whether I'm received or not is not necessarily contingent on how I showed up, but also where this person is in their ability to receive me. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where we have to get nuanced about it because you're right. We do have to find a middle way, but the way yeah. that we find the, the middle way is by, you know, running into walls. And by uh, being courageous, by mm -hmm. expressing truth, whatever it may be for each individual and to risk being offensive because sometimes you're going to offend somebody and you have to risk being offensive in the pursuit of truth mm -hmm. because we're not going to get anywhere if we don't have the ability to have candid conversation. Right. So uh, for me to raise my hand and say, I can't listen to this. This offends me. This hurts me as a, whatever I might be. Um, that's a cop out. That's a way of saying, I'm not going to listen. So we have to, uh, value. I agree with what you said earlier about too many opinions, not enough learning. Mm. And then I think learning is like a, a loop that goes learn and then express. And then you get correction from other people by speaking, mm -hmm. you speak, you share, you have an opinion, and then you get slapped around a little bit and goes, that was good. That was dumb. That was this, that was that you need to educate more on this. That's how you learn what to go learn more of. And mm -hmm. so both sides of that seem to be really important. It's like, let's get educated. Let's share what we learn and let's risk being offended or being offensive mm -hmm. because that's how we grow. And we find this, this bridge. Um, and men and women, you know, the, the, the most fascinating part about this is like, there's no battle here. Men and women want each other and love each other. <laughs> like men go crazy for women. And I'd like to think the same for women. <laughs> uh, to some, In some way, that's how we would describe it. We go crazy for women. But it's like, yeah, I mean, we the world would suck without each other. <laughs> no, so let's figure I, this out. And it's, it's bigger than all of us. You know, the... the whenever I think about the work that I do and why I do what I do and, the, and why I have these types of conversations all the time, it really boils down to my niece. I think of my niece and the world she's inheriting and the fact that if any kid can walk lighter than I did, and I'm speaking from a place of tremendous privilege, mm -hmm. then why wouldn't I want to do work for that to happen? What better use of my time do I have than to give it an honest go at trying to be a better human and to show up for my community and to invite people to difficult conversations that in a way facilitate a greater understanding and lessen this just perpetual state of shame that we're all carrying. Yeah. Do you and have any resources for 
what you're describing, particularly for men. There was a part where you were really describing, I think it was really important around men and their ability to handle to, the fact that they don't even know what their emotions are oftentimes, that they were encouraged not to have them. I only know of one decent, you know, good, good book that I know of. Uh, my friend Lewis Howes wrote a book called Mask of Masculinity. Mm-hmm. That's a great read. But I don't know of many others. Um, I'm curious if you do. Or what would you recommend to a client? Like if I was your client and we just had this conversation right now, is there a certain program or work or, or education that I can take on? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you could hire me. <laughs> um, I love doing that work. But to your point about resources, it, it also depends on um, – what your interests are, you know, if I look at the cross section of, of my clients, I have wall street guys that if I give them anything spiritual, it will not land. And I have ultra spiritual people that couldn't care less about Ray Dalio's views on the importance of transparency. So, um, there are a ton of resources among my favorites. Um, I would say there's a book called, uh, I think it's, King, Lover, Warrior, Magician. Yeah. Um, and I'm a huge fan of working with the archetypal realm. Yeah. Uh, I love I've Carl heard Jung. of this. Um, and Robert Moore. Mm-hmm. And King, Warrior, Magician, Lover. Rediscovering the archetypes of the mature masculine. Yeah, I have this on my list already. Wow. Cool. Time to read um, it. Somewhat controversial, but I think enlightening is David Data's work called The Way of the... Why is it controversial? He, he's an interesting cat. I'll let you find that piece out. I've, I've read it. I've read it. So oh, I'm curious the, what, yeah, what the controversy is around it. Uh, some people feel that it, that it falls into more gender-specific things, even though he does speak to the... the fact that it's an energetic conversation rather than a gender-based conversation. Yeah. Um, but the, the criticism I hear most often with that particular one is that it could go a layer deeper than it does mm. where it's not, you know, the masculine is always in dominance and yes. the feminine is in. There's a default perception because in the if, book. Right. If, if we're, evolving we're all evolving into a greater integrated masculine and feminine within ourselves mm. that's the whole point you right. know it, it's not about the feminine going deeply into the feminine and that's it or the yes. masculine doing the same well perhaps that's what this other book is uh, alluding to because jung was very big on these archetypes and talking about both of those energies existing within us mm-hmm. they're both there equally and we move from one to the other Uh, I believe it's called like when a female moves into that masculine energy, it's a negative onimus and it's completely uh, the flow of energy has shifted into the opposite of what we kind of discussed. And you can go back and forth and back and forth. And Mm -hmm. so it looks like it was written by Jungian analysts. So that's cool because I love Mm -hmm. Carl Jung. (laughs) Those are great resources. And of course, there's you. So you, uh, I want to close out by talking a little bit about just just kind of your journey and where you're at and how people can find you. So you were spending all this time in the media world. It's, I know it's very hard to just say, this is who I was and this is who I am now. But mm-hmm. you know, you were on TV, you had this show, you were spending all this time in media. Um, and today you take on clients as a life coach. 
and uh, you travel the world and you continue to have this incredible life. So tell me about that shift and tell me who, you know, who's the ideal person for you right now? Because I know you're saying there isn't necessarily an archetype for this person. It could be a Wall Street guy. It could be a, uh, you know, spiritual person. So, but who should be reaching out to you? Who's the right person for you? Got it. Okay. So in me in a nutshell, I would say the career has been guided exclusively by my curiosity. So I had pit stops in tech, finance, food, manufacturing, entertainment, the world bank, telecom, pharma. Um, so I dipped into many different worlds, always trying to figure out and explore something new. Um, Coaching has been the first gig that has helped me not just continue to discover myself as I work with my clients, but also there's no end to the discovery of the human condition. Mm. I never get bored. <laughs> this is the first gig where I never get bored. <laughs> I can totally because see that. As Right. And as similar as we, we may be, and, and, you know, we do have similar hangups and worries and fears. Um, every human being is a living universe and it is an incredible honor to dive into somebody's psyche with them in a way where you are helping them unpack things they may not have been aware of. Um, but that are getting in the way of them sometimes even giving themselves permission to think of anything else. So when, when you ask me about, you know, what I do now, um, I help people get from a point of either being unclear of why they're not happy or who they are, and through a process of exploration, both as individuals, but also making sure that they're plugging into their communities as well through service, mm. um, ensuring that they're approaching this, this inquiry in a very wholesome way. Who am I in my relationship to myself? Who am I in my relationship with my family? Am I giving back? Am I getting the perspective that's available to me from stepping out of myself and not putting myself in the center of my universe? <laughs> so, we do this beautiful work of, of looking at the human from a 360-degree perspective. And once we have a good idea of where they stand, we're like, okay, well, where do you want to go? And most people don't know. So then it turns into a game of exploration of, you know, follow, follow the bliss. Mm. Whatever feels good gives us some sort of a data point that may be useful in constructing whatever the new life looks like. So we embark on that journey gathering data. Once we have enough data, we pick a project and then that will serve as a reference point for them moving forward in their lives as, hey, it's not only safe for me to think differently, it's actually fun and mm. possible and yields a really positive result. So when I think of the people that I wanna work with, I don't think of a particular type of human. I think of a quality of, um, behavior. I How think about being of, coachable. That's <laughs> probably exactly. pretty important. Yeah. I, I like, I like people who are curious. I like people who, um, are honest and who have the humility to just be like, Oh yeah, mm. I'm in my shit and who can laugh about it. Yes. Because if you do this work, you will need to have a sense of humor. <laughs> 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 so true. 
There will be points. Well, it gets it gets yeah. really fucking heavy, and it, and you facing your shadows is a very challenging thing to do. And having somebody to facilitate that and to do it with you um, can make it much easier, but it can also make it fun. And so you totally. better be willing to and, pause and, and laugh at it. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be all like that's something that I emphasize a lot in my work with people is play. Yes, yes. it's difficult. Yes, the shadow sucks, but you know what? You know, you can learn to work with your inner critic in a way where you have like a friendship with your inner critic by the end of working yes. together. Um, so I'm looking for people who are ready to do the work, people who are honest and, and people who are humble enough to sit with the reality of the shit that they want to change and want it bad enough that they put in the commitment and the effort necessary. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I have, I have always pretty much always in my adult life had uh, a coach of some kind and, uh, Oh, are you kidding me? This is, this is not an easy, <laughs> there's a lot of shit to figure out. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, having that, uh, or I would say that's, that's like one primary driver. The second driver is that, well, I'm, I'm devoted to being the fullest expression of who I can be. And uh, integrating everything that I actually learn and experience and turning that into um, a positive and being an optimist about everything and facing challenges and finding the opportunities in them and having a coach in the simplest way that you can view one simple benefit is you can never see yourself the way you think you can. I mean, we could be having a conversation. I could be talking to my coach and I could say something that sounds like normal communication. And he or she might say something like, Armand, what did you just say? And that's all they have to say. It's like, repeat that back to me. And it's like, oh my God, I did it again. And I might have some pattern for me that's like not good enough or fixed mindset, or I made something bigger than it should be. And it's really just something small and insignificant, whatever it might be. And that person can be there to reflect back to you and to see yeah. the best version of you. And I personally also like want to give a, a final thought on that in the sense that I think that everybody, everybody could, could benefit from a coach and everybody could also benefit from a therapist. I think they're different things. I'm curious what you think about that. I think that uh, they're similar. They're similar, but they're trained differently and they provide different things. And so depending on where you're at in your life and the depth of work that you're looking to do, if it's more performance driven, if it's more about finding fulfillment, or if it's to deal with deep traumas, both people can help in different ways. Um, Do you have thoughts on like, I know that people ask themselves, should I see should I go to a therapist? Should I, or should I get a coach? Um, and I know they're pretty different things. They, they are lately. If I'm being completely honest with you, I think the lines have blurred quite yeah. significantly. And there are types of therapy that are more similar to coaching, like cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, I think coaching draws a lot from that because it's, it's yeah. based on behavioral structuring and change. Um, the way I see it and speak to it, and I can't claim to be, you know, a figurehead for coaches everywhere, but, um, I think if you're at a point where you feel like you would benefit from really working through specific traumatic experiences or 
need help unpacking something specific in your past, mm. I would go with therapy just so that you can a start getting used to speaking about things, b develop a little bit of a vocabulary around your emotional landscape, get some valuable data from the doctor or therapist that you're seeing. Um, if you're at a point where you've done work, you understand a little bit of your patterning and you're more wanting to shift into a future-based mindset into, mm. okay, what the, I understand the why behind what was, what now and who now, mm -hmm. then I would, I would go down the coaching route. Um, mm. Well but it, it, it's tricky for me to say that, though, because because coaches coaching, can help you with your past, too, for sure. Coaches can help you with your past, but also coaches aren't regulated the way that therapists are. Mm -hmm. And and that can be a slippery slope, too. Yes. So I, I would say, find regardless of whether it's a coach or a therapist, find a human that feels good. Mm, very important distinction. That's that's, that's all that matters, actually. That is literally all that matters. I, <laughs> Can I be I, honest with this person? Can they bring out the best to me? Do I enjoy right, their company? Right. Yeah. And and I, I turn away people from my practice that I don't have chemistry with for that right. reason. Because the level of, of yourself that you give to the work is what you'll get out of it. So it, it should be somebody that you feel honest with. It should be somebody that you feel safe with. And it should be somebody mm -hmm. that you feel has the tools credentials, if that's important to you, necessary um, to help you feel confident in making that decision. Amazing. Amazing. Your website is www.namasme.com. Yes. Namasme.com. I'm on it yes. right now. I'm looking at it, people. Uh, you should read her about page. It's a beautiful story. She's got a nice clear button uh, on work with me and to book a time with her. Uh, you should absolutely check Mona out. I am a huge fan and I'm very appreciative, Mona, of our newfound friendship. Thanks for taking the time to spend with me. Thanks for stepping into a not easy topic at all. And one that when you pointed out you were spending time thinking about, I thought that's, that's where I want to go because I know a lot of people aren't willing to go there. And I can just sense the the openness with which you approach every conversation. And I really appreciate that. And I appreciate the work you're doing for people in the world. You're in, you're in service yourself. So you're walking the talk and you're helping us all do it. So thank you. Thank you. Uh, any final words in terms of how to get in touch with you or any closing thoughts? Um, you can find me on Instagram at Hey Namasme. And, um, I think from a closing thoughts perspective is if you heard something in this conversation that struck a chord with you, either positively or negatively, send me a note. You know, I, this is about perpetuating dialogue and, and really nourishing it. And um, if, if I can provide a safe place for somebody to ask questions or disagree and express, I'm happy to do that. I think it's important for more of us to do that. So I'm happy to step up in that way. Um, so yeah, send me a note if, if something struck a chord with you. Thank you. Appreciate you. Thank you, Mona. Awesome. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your day. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Sorry. I just finished taking a gulp of um, 
kombucha. Gingerade flavor. Yeah, things are getting weird here. I'm just letting you know. That's all I'm doing. I'm just letting you know. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for tuning in. This was um, a really important conversation. Really important conversation. Thank you, Mona, for stepping into it. Thank you for having this conversation with me. Thank you also for creating the space the same way I attempted to to do for you so that you could share vulnerably and uh, help us navigate all of this. And thanks for bringing the humor, especially toward the beginning. That was absolutely amazing. Um, I'm sure you all loved those accents and those little imitations at the beginning. Please do follow up with Mona. Check her out. Check out her website. All uh Everything basically that was mentioned on today's show is available at armonasadi.com forward slash podcast. Uh, all the show notes, uh, summary of the episode, and links uh, to all the books mentioned, all the people mentioned will be included there under this episode. And uh, make sure you're subscribed to the show, please. Muy importante. That's Spanish for very important. But pretty much 67% of you already knew that. So subscribe to the show on Apple, on Spotify, wherever you're listening, and uh, leave me a review if you haven't already. That's it. Talk to you next time. Much love. Take care of yourself.